Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan. My guest this week is once again Laura Fox of the Humane Society of the United States. She will be talking about a case that you probably have heard about. It's called McIver versus Murphy Brown, and it was recently decided in the Fourth Circuit. And it was a lawsuit brought by some residents of North Carolina who were completely fed up with the environmental horrors visited upon their neighborhoods by local pig factory farms, uh, many of which were owned by Smithfield or subsidiaries of Smithfield. And the reason that I think you might have heard about it is because of this amazing concurrence by Judge James Harvey Wilkinson III. And this concurrence was beautifully written, really interestingly reasoned, and it took very, very seriously not only the environmental harms, not only the problems associated with visiting these harms upon people who were financially disadvantaged, but also the horrific treatment and cruelty toward the animals and how all these things are connected. You don't often see this in environmental cases, as you all well know. And somehow it feels, it just feels like it might be a tipping point. This is a big deal judge. So this is pretty cool. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to take a moment to ask for your support for our hen house which is the not-for-profit entity that produces this podcast along with the Our Hen House podcast. And if you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And there you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can just make a one-time donation in any amount you can afford. And, and we would deeply, deeply appreciate it. Of course, we know that for many people, these are very hard times and this is definitely meant for those who are able, and I think everyone who supports our podcast knows that they are helping to provide animal-friendly media, not just for themselves, but for others who maybe can't afford right now to contribute. So we are incredibly grateful for that. And of course, if you haven't yet done so, please check out the Our Hen House podcast, which I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. A couple of recent episodes that might be of interest include episodes 570 with Michelle Rojas Soto who is the managing director of Encompass, and she spoke with us recently about diversity, equity, and inclusion within the farmed animal protection movement. Great interview. Another great interview of late was on episode 569 with Natalie Bibeau about her extraordinary documentary film. I just loved this movie. It's called The Walrus and the Whistleblower, and it recounts the tragic story of the animals at Marine Land in Niagara Falls, Canada, and also the story of this former employee activist who has been fighting for the release of a particularly beloved walrus. Laura Fox is the staff attorney for Farm Animal Protection for the Humane Society of the United States Animal Protection Law Department. She works to protect farmed animals from the industrialized practices of factory farms, including by filing complaints with federal and state agencies litiga and litigating issues arising under the National Environmental Policy Act, the Administrative Procedure Act, the Freedom of Information Act, and a lot of other federal statutes, as well as litigating consumer protection cases at the state level. She is also an adjunct professor of animal law at George Mason's Law School, and she will be joining me right after this. I want to tell you about an amazing service for anybody who's practicing animal law or interested in animal law. The Brooks Animal Law Digest is a premier free online publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on today's most important animal law and policy issues. Published weekly as a collaborative effort with Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program, the Digest is a Brooks Institute service to the animal protection community. 
It can be like having a full-time lawyer on your staff researching and reporting to you on U.S. current legal developments related to animal protection issues. This digest is a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the field of animal law, either as a high-level overview of weekly developments for those who are focused on specific work, but nevertheless want to stay aware of other actions, or as a jumping-off point for digging into a specific current issue in the field. Features include allowing you to compile updates by category, search by key terms, and each issue contains links to background materials that will orient the reader around that specific issue. There are weekly highlights as well as quarterly summaries. You can subscribe to the Brooks Animal Law Digest at thebrooksinstitute.org. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Laura. Thanks for having me back. I am thrilled to have you back, and I'm thrilled beyond belief to be talking about this case, uh, McIver versus Murphy Brown. And I think probably a lot of people read about it a bit because it was a big headline within the animal protection movement, because of, specifically because of the concurrence. But the whole case is really interesting and a real victory. And so I really want to go through the issues in a little detail and give people an idea of what's happening here, because this is a huge issue. And it's, I think an opening has been created here for even more progress for animals through the cause of the ancient antique cause of action of nuisance, which we all learned about in in law school and has turned out to be a really uh, important vehicle for animal lawyers. But let's start off with a few of the facts. We're talking about hog farming as they like to call it. And in in North Carolina, where there are many, many, many pigs. And can you just give us the basic idea here? Let's just start with the system, this spray field system. I think some people listening may be familiar with this, but some may not. So describe this lagoon, as they call it, system and what they're like. Yeah. So in North Carolina, I think they have uh, the second largest population of hog farms. And the farms at issue, in this case, there are these series of cases, there are 89 of them. And the, the particular farm here housed approximately 15,000 pigs. And when you're raising that many pigs, you can expect to generate a lot of waste. And so as it turns out, those nearly 15,000 pigs generated over 150,000 pounds of waste each day. And that waste is sifted through concrete slats on the floor of the houses that these pigs are stored and drained into what are called poo lagoons. So there's massive, massive kind of ponds or lakes of, of waste that are open air that store fecal matter and urine. And then, so that, that's the lagoon part of the spray and lagoon system. So to then create more room in the lagoon system, they have to spread that waste somewhere. And what they end up doing is kind of through hoses, they facilitate the the spraying of this liquidy feces, urine-filled waste over nearby land and fields. And this can be used as you know manure and fertilizer and everything, but it really is just to create 
more room. And so at this particular farm, 8 million gallons of pig feces were sprayed into the air and over land each year. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's about as disgusting as you can get. And so obviously, the people who live near these facilities are very burdened by this. And who are the plaintiffs in this particular case? So there are 10 neighbors of that farm that we just discussed. And many of them have lived in this area for decades and some for generations. So one of the plaintiffs, Archie Wright, moved there in 1948 and now has you know five generations of family um, on the property and living nearby. And this is just, you know, one of the many lawsuits that were brought. There were 26 related nuisance lawsuits brought by over 500 people living near these types of hog farms. Yeah, I had, I knew that this was case was coordinated with a whole bunch of other similar cases, but they I wasn't sure whether they didn't all refer to this facility. There's just a lot of these facilities in North Carolina. And so they they kind of had the same issues, but did not relate to the same specific geographic area. Is that right? They were all in, in the same kind of region of Eastern North Carolina, but each of the 26 uh, cases related to different farms. So there are 89 farms that were at issue. 14, I believe, were actually owned by Marthy Brown and the, and the remaining were um, contract farms. Yeah. And this one in, involved in this case was called Kinlaw Farms. And it was one of these contract farms. You know, I'm pretty familiar with the fact that that contract farms have kind of overtaken the poultry industry. I didn't realize they were so prominent in the pig industry. Is, is that a direction in which things are going or are the, you know, the big conglomerates still the owners of a lot of these pigs? I think so. I mean, it's the chickenization of everything. It just, you know, as we can see from this lawsuit, it, it's an attempt to shield the, the larger corporation from liability. Um, and we, we see this often when then it trickles down to the contract farmer and the corporation's trying to pass on blame and liability to, you know, the poor farmer who's just you know, trying to make ends meet and gets into a system that gets them over his head. Yeah, it's it's just an evil system in in so many ways. And so, all right, so this these these plaintiffs live in the vicinity of Kinlaw Farms, which is the the contractor here. And can you just describe the how does this relationship work? Because the lawsuit is brought against Murphy Brown, but that's really Smithfield, right? How, what are the connections here between Kinlaw, Murphy Brown, and Smithfield? Yeah, it is super complicated. I mean, they really just I'm sure not their by corporate. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so Murphy Brown is a wholly owned subsidiary of Smithfield Foods. So that's really what, when you hear of Smithfield, you're thinking of this Smithfield Foods company. But then Murphy Brown is doing business as I think Smithfield hog production. And so, right, when you're using Smithfield, it gets complicated because what are you referring to? Generally, I'm going to probably group them together because, you know, as you read in the uh, ruling, it's very clear that the corporate parent has a lot of control over the subsidiary and over the contractor. So then Smithfield Foods is owned by 
another parent company, WH Group. And actually, it's not a direct sort of relationship. I think there are seven corporate layers between Smithfield and, and WH Group. So it gets really, really complicated. But basically, I mean, there's, you know, the the contract grower who's there on the ground raising these pigs. Murphy Brown is the one that's directly in contract with them. But then, you know, Murphy Brown is owned by Smithfield, who's then owned by WH Group. Yeah, uh, it is complicated, definitely describes it. So my understanding is that at first the plaintiff sued Kinlaw, but when they found out, that, and that was in state court, but when they found out that Murphy Brown like pretty much exercised complete control over the way Kinlaw operated, they dropped that state action and went to federal court and sued Murphy Brown under diversity jurisdiction. Am I, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, okay good. So in addition to the, just to set the scene a little more completely, in addition to the use of the lagoon, I love, you know, we all love that term. I've been hearing it so long that uh, sometimes I forget the irony of it, but the lagoon and spray field method. Other complaints included the, the trucks constantly going in and out of these facilities, which are kind of in, you know, they're, they're in rural areas. You know, you would expect it to be quiet, but they're pretty much 24-7 trucks and the dead boxes. Is that right? Yeah. So imagine raising these pigs in warehouse-like facilities where they're congregated so tightly. They're given antibiotics to sort of stave off infection and disease. And yet, right, because of those conditions, Kinlaw Farms and Murphy Brown just in general expects that about 10% of the hogs being raised are going to die. So then those dead hogs are then thrown into basically dumpsters and collected there until they are picked up by, you know, large trucks to move them away. And so these plaintiffs who live nearby can see piles of dead pigs in dumpsters. And that is not pleasant to say the least. And can, I mean, they also draw a good deal of, I, I was hearing buzzards and of course flies and, and other insects and, and probably many other problems. And, you know, I think it's important to remember when we're talking about this 10% of them die, these are babies. I mean, these are not, they're not dying of old age. They don't even have the mothers here, right? Like, like these right. are just the babies who like after they're born and raised, so to speak, in uh, other facilities are shipped to this place just to be taken to be the four to six months that they live to get big enough to go to slaughter. That's right. So for 10% of, ba- of these very young animals to die is staggering. I know. So yeah, these farms are considered finishing facilities or grow houses. So there's different facilities where the piglets are actually born to mother sows and many times those mother sows are kept in individual stalls or gestation crates for the majority or most of their lives and kept there to produce piglet after piglet. And then those piglets are taken and moved to these other facilities where they are, quote unquote, finished until they are fully grown and at market weight to then be sent to slaughter. And so that's why you have all these trucks coming back and forth day and night. You have piglets being delivered and you have 
you know, the grown hogs being taken away for slaughter. And just to finish setting the scene here, this is probably obvious, but there are enormous racial and economic justice issues at play here. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And I, you know, I know we're going to get to it, but Judge Wilkinson's concurrence really does highlight the issue. I mean, the majority of plaintiffs and people in these communities are BIPOC, people of color, are, you know, minorities and, you know, otherwise disenfranchised or or economically lower class. So it's really an environmental and social justice issue here where um, these marginalized groups are paying the environmental and public health costs directly of something that's supposedly benefiting Americans, but as we'll probably talk, is, is also you know benefiting other countries um, on the backs of these individuals. So uh, there's a lot going on here, clearly. And but as I mentioned, the gravamen of the action is in you know one of the oldest causes of actions around nuisance. Can you just tell us what the elements of a nuisance claim are and why it's becoming a more important tool in fighting factory farming? Yeah, so basically you have a right to use and enjoy your property as you would like. And if somebody is interfering with that use and enjoyment, then you have a, a cause of action to bring a, a, to, you know, enjoying then and also be made whole in, in the case of you not being able to use that property the way that you want to use it. So that's the basic sort of conditions for a nuisance claim. And then it gets into distinctions between whether or not you're intentionally causing this, whether or not it's something that's concurrent or something that is just repeatable. And so those are just kind of nuances of of the law that, that come into play here. But the basic fundamental principle is that you have a, a right to to you know be free of annoyances and be free of interference when you are um, planning to use your property. So, can you tell us what happened below? Because obviously, the decision we're talking about today was on appeal. Yeah. So these cases uh, in this particular one, I went to a full trial. I believe this particular trial was a four week trial, and. We have to give so much credit to Mike Kesky, who was the trial counsel. Um, and I was fortunate enough to see him in action during one of the trials. Um, and it was just so brilliantly done. And so after the, the four weeks of trial in front of a, a jury, the jury deliberated and uh, entered a verdict in which plaintiffs received 75000 in compensatory damages, and that's per plaintiff, and then $5 million in punitive damages, which unfortunately, although fortunate for Smithfield, North Carolina had capped that. And so that was reduced to $2.5 million. And uh, interesting, well, there are a bunch of arguments here, but I think we can cover uh, some of them succinctly. First of all, uh, they argued on appeal that there was a problem that Kinlaw as, as we mentioned before, this, this case is McIver et al. Uh, against Murphy Brown. The kin law was not a necessary 
was a necessary or indispensable party and because it was not joined or not sued, the, the case had to be dismissed. So um, can you just tell us what the basic argument was here and what the court did with that? Yeah, so I, I would say Smithfield's motivation or Murphy Brown's motivation to attach Ken Law as a party here is to destroy diversity jurisdiction and get it back into state court. And so that was, I think, why they were so gung-ho at arguing that that Kinlaw Farms as a contract grower is essential to the outcome of the case. And they're going to be impacted by the outcome of the case. And, and so they should be, you know, a part of the, of the process so that their interests could be taken into account and, and advocated for. Now, interestingly, uh, you know, Ken Law never, you know, stepped in and, and asked for their interests to be advocated for. And, and Smithfield's argument is, is basically after these verdicts went in, they found Ken Law to be in breach of contract. And then they stopped sending them hogs and stopped using them as a contract grower. And so Kinlaw's interests are obviously impacted by the lawsuit. But as the, the trial board in the Fourth Circuit found, a Smithfield operates um, substantial control of what Kinlaw does. And so they can basically be you know, standing in the place and held responsible for what Kinlaw does. So they don't have to, that, that farm doesn't need to be in this case for those issues to be adjudicated. And also, whatever happens to Kinlaw post-judgment, you know, whether it be the termination of, of a contract, isn't a necessary consequence, right? That's up to Murphy Brown and, and Smithfield. Yeah. And so there's nothing that the jury or the court could do that would impose liability on Kinlaw or impose some sort of verdict on Kinlaw such that they would need to be a party to the lawsuit. What Smithfield was arguing Kinlaw needed to be a party for is basically their own choice, their own doing um, with regards to how they're going to respond to Kinlaw. Um, yeah, seriously, it would give them total control over whether they had been a necessary party because after the verdict is in, they fire them and say, see, it was they were necessary because look what happened to them when they're the ones who did it. It's crazy, really, yeah. when you think about the argument. And Kinlaw didn't even try to be part of this lawsuit, did it? No. Yeah. I can see why they really wanted it. To be able to keep these cases in state court is probably a huge advantage, but all right. So you you had mentioned before that there was also a statute of limitations issue. You alluded to it because you were talking about different kinds of nuisance. And that was very important in this statute of limitations argument, wasn't it? Yeah, right. So even though we're in federal court, we're, we're applying North Carolina common law with regards to nuisance, but there's also some codified law um, with regards to these causes of action. So there's a three-year statute of limitation applying to actions involving continuing nuisances. So once an act has been done that creates a nuisance, um, you have three years from that date to bring um, your case. And Kinlaw has been operating, you know, for a, a decade or longer 
in a manner that interfered with the use and enjoyment of plaintiff's property. And so Smithfield argued, I mean, your time's up. You needed to bring this case back when um, at least three years after we started creating all of these odors and bringing you know, flies and buzzards to your yard and piling up dead, dead pigs. Like you, you no longer can bring this case. And so the plaintiffs argued that this actually involves a recurrent nuisance. And so there wasn't one completed act that then started the statute of limitations and it was over every minute, every day that the farm is operating in this manner is creating a you know new nuisance, additional nuisance for longer periods of time, right? And so then the statute of limitations, you know, doesn't bar um, your ability to recover for a recurrent nuisance, but it does, you know, limit the time frame in which you can recover, right? So you're still going to be limited to three years in in the in the you know backdating. And so you're not, you know, you're not gonna necessarily be able to recover for things that happened 10 years ago. But it doesn't mean that if the nuisance is still happening and it's continuing because it's a recurrent issue that comes up over and over again that you can not, not bring a nuisance action. Um, I feel lost on that. It, it seems this seems so obvious to me, and yet the court spent a lot of time on it and went into it in detail. So I assume this could be an important precedent in other cases. It seems obvious that that you know this isn't something they did once, and it's been annoying every day since they did it, and and you've waited ten years to sue them about it. it it's something they're doing every single day, and and. So, of course, you should be able to sue. You may not be able to recover all 10 years of those damages, but they're doing it today. So so why would you have to uh, have sued them when they first started doing it? Uh, it seems like such an obvious thing, but, but I can imagine this might be a, a pretty important holding for actions against factory farms. Yeah, I mean, it really just depends on where you're going to file your claim and what the statute of limitations is in, in that state. But... I think uh, for sure this would be an argument that almost any farm's going to make, especially if it's you fall outside of whatever the statute limitations are from the initial creation of the factory farm. But uh, this can now be be cited in North in North Carolina and then in other states as as persuasive to to demonstrate that you know this is repeated in injuries. This isn't just a single event causing ongoing damages, right? Every day they renew what their actions, right? And and they should be held accountable for that. Now, another argument that came up, which I guess is kind of inevitable in a nuisance cause of action is the Right to Farm Act, because Right to Farm Acts were, of course, passed specifically to stop nuisance actions against, against quote-unquote farms or these factories. And this was a, actually an interesting argument because it appears that the North Carolina Right to Farm Act in its original uh, iteration would not have been a problem here. It may not have, you know, there didn't seem to be any defense, but they had actually changed it in 2017. And they were, Murphy Brown was arguing that this was retroactive, which seems like an insane argument again. But, yeah. uh, but uh, can, you just, can you just tell us a little bit about how, how they made this argument? 
Yeah, this one's questionably doesn't pass the laughing test in my <laughs> um, opinion. But um, okay, so you know the lawsuits were initiated like in 2014, 2015 that that time frame. Um, in 2017, you know, after success of some of these at some of the trials, the big ag political interests got the North Carolina Assembly to amend the Right to Farm Act in 2017. And so the title of the amendment is an act to clarify the remedies available in private nuisance actions against agricultural and forestry operations. And so the argument is the amendment in 2007 wasn't to change anything um, about the Right to Farm Act. It was to clarify to provide a clarify what the legislature intended the Right to Farm Act to do from the very beginning. And so if it's just a clarifying amendment, that means it always applied, right? So from the very beginning. Now, why this doesn't pass the laugh test is because the quote-unquote clarifying amendment only says that it's clarifying in the title. And if you look at what was added, a whole section was added to the Right to Farm Act by this amendment. So it wasn't like it was like, oh, in this section, we meant X, Y, and Z, right? Because we already addressed that. They never addressed remedies available in private nuisance, right? And so they added that, okay, well, um, you can only get remedies for diminution of property value, or uh, if it's if it's rental value, right? Or the 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 lower rent that you're going to then um, be able to charge, and so this means that you're not able to recover damages for you know the the annoyance and discomfort that you face um, from all of these nuisances, and because the plaintiffs didn't bring didn't ask for sort of remedies related to the damage to their property values and only about the use and enjoyment and noise and discomfort, Smithfield argued that, you know, their lawsuit, you know, couldn't move forward. Um, They don't have a proper cause of action. And fortunately, the court solved through that and also pointed to the actual text of the amendment that, that said, this amendment will uh, only apply to um, uh, cases in the future, right? Not in, and it didn't necessarily say that it didn't apply to pending cases, but at one point it did, and that language w- was, was taken out. But it was very uh, clear from just the strict language in, in the amendment that this was intended for only future actions and not pending actions. Do you have the slightest doubt that that the, using the word clarification in the title was was deliberate? No, I, I mean, <laughs> no doubt at all. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seems pretty obvious. You know, I, so they couldn't bring this case now, or they would have to. They would have to argue that their the value of their property had been diminished. They couldn't argue that anything to do with uh, their right to enjoyment has been uh, loss of enjoyment. They've lost their right to enjoy their property. Exactly. It's pretty stifling because, I mean, just, you know, we 
the no- knowledge of where these farms are located and the property values in general are relatively low. And I mean, yes, they get lower when, you know, factory farms move in next to them. But, you know, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars probably. Um, And so it really limits the ability of marginalized communities to recover. Um, And it's pretty upsetting. Yeah, no, it's horrifying. Like, yeah, their property isn't worth much on the market. So, yeah, again, we could turn this into a cost of doing business. Whereas, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, later in the case when it came to punitive damages, the court was very, and this is the one issue that was the plaintiffs lost on, that knowledge of uh, how wealthy and enormous Smithfield is couldn't possibly be, be introduced because it might prejudice the jury to to hand out more punitive damages, but they should hand out more punitive damages. <laughs> like if, if these people be, can be screwed because their property isn't worth most much, why can't, why can't Smithfield be punished in a, in a way that actually hurts them because their property is worth really a lot. Anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of myself and a little carried away, but uh, the unfairness here is just manifest. There's also an argument about expert evidence to tell you the truth. I don't want to go into this in detail because it's too complex and, it would just take up too much time. We have other things to get to. But they did argue that the plaintiff's expert should not um, have been allowed to testify to all the things that he did testify about regarding odors. And the the defendant's expert should have testified, should have been able able to testify about what basically was the the conclusion in the case. So that that wasn't the reason. But um, do you just want to and, and I, I should advise people, this is a remarkably well-written decision, I thought. It's very clear. And so if you're interested in the issues that we don't have time to go into, please, you know, take a look at the, at the opinion because it's really good, I thought. Um, but do you want to talk, do you want to say anything about the expert evidence issue and yeah. broader implications for these cases in general? Yeah, well, so um, I kind I kind of wanted to give you an anecdote, just more sort of ridiculousness and shenanigans happening. So, Dr. Shane Rogers was the, the the plaintiff's expert, and he went out and he measured the presence of a DNA marker in hog feces called pig tubac. It's only found in hog feces, and so right, the presence of this DNA marker on plaintiff's property indicates that the hog feces travels, right? And so then the question became, well, can you use that as a proxy for odor? The plaintiffs was arguing, well, Dr. Rogers wasn't really trying to do that. He was just talking about, you know, the movement of animal waste onto the property and that, you know, the jury can infer what it wants from there. But, you know, Smithfield was claiming, you know, that his testimony went way too much into then how that relates to odor and uh, and he wasn't an, an odor expert. Um, and so his testimony should have been excluded. At trial, so this is the, the interesting anecdote. So Smithfield's trial attorney cross-examined Dr. Rogers for such an extended amount of time and tried to undermine his credibility by pointing to a class that he teaches at Clarkson University on paranormal activity. So he does this class on ghost busting with, uh, with Clarkson University researches, researchers. And it's all about going out and using the, 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 
the scientific equipment to kind of test different things. And mm-hmm. the ghostbusting is just a hook to get students interested. Like yeah. I'm not really a believer of like the paranormal activity. Oh my God. But the <laughs> attorney literally was like berating this man, asking him like, don't you believe in ghosts? And or, like, what about this paranormal activity? And how can we trust a scientist who believes in ghosts? And it's just so outrageous. Meanwhile, their expert, Dr. Dalton, was there to testify that smell is subjective. And so how are we to know how these plaintiffs react and feel about hog shit smelling? Like, how are we to say that, you know, this is really interfering with their lives because everybody smells things differently. Oh my God. Um, and it's just, I, I think, extremely uh, ridiculous. I mean, yes, everybody might have a different reaction to smells. Somebody might have an allergic reaction to some. But I'm pretty sure, you know, hog waste smells foul. <laughs> <laughs> how how you know, I don't think I asked you, how close were their houses to this lagoon that, what, what was it, 80,000 gallons of, of poop and urine? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so 8 million gallons each year. But um, yeah, so it varied, right, within uh-huh. you know, um, hundreds of yards to um, half a mile or yeah. something. Yeah, how could you possibly smell 80,000 gallons of poop <laughs> half a mile away? That's just crazy. All right, so those are good stories about about uh, the experts. And the next the next issue that came up, which I thought this was the one that like had the toughest job surviving the laugh test, but you know maybe I'm missing something. The jury instruction on vicarious liability. What what were they saying? Like it, it just reminded me of, of of every time anything happens in a factory farm. We had no idea. Yeah, I mean this. It kind of gets gets to the same sort of points as the um, bringing Ken Law in as a you know not indispensable party, right? Like so, Ken Law's a contractor of Murphy Brown, and so how can we be held responsible for what actions the contractor is taking, right? And we don't know that the contractor is doing stuff to injure the neighbors. Um, in fact, the neighbors have never complained to us. Like, how would we know? that these practices that we mandate that this contractor takes causes, you know, foul odors and causes these noisy trucks and piles of dead pigs, right? And the court just didn't buy it, right? So yes, Ken Law's a contractor, but Murphy Brown really dictates all of the practices that that are to be deployed in the raising of those pigs, including the use of the lagoon and spray system. And, you know, it's, it's very well known the uh, consequences of those systems um, and the environmental harms. And so Smithfield was certainly on notice that, that these types of practices, you know, result um, in, in, in such nuisances. It's just crazy. I mean, I know it, you know it. Well, all right, we're animal people, so we can't request it, but like, <laughs> like how, like, how, 
how could this not be a nuisance? Like every, and, and the other thing, you could almost, not quite, but almost feel sorry for Kinlaw because they're doing everything they were told to do. And now they're, you know, they're saying, we had no idea. It's just crazy. All right, let's get to the um, punitive damages um, question because this is, this is unfortunately one that you did not have a complete win on and we've alluded to it. Can you just go through what happened here? Plaintiffs were awarded $75,000 each in compensatory damages and then $5 million in impunitive damages, which is capped at $2.5 million. And the argument is that, okay, so we had one jury that was deciding all of this and we really needed to bifurcate or have two different sort of hearings on whether or not punitive damage should be assessed and how much it should be assessed. And in, in North Carolina state law, it's mandatory that, that that be bifurcated. And but in federal court, the judge has discretion on to whether on whether or not to, to bifurcate that. And that's really what we lost on was because there might have been some evidence that that entered in that might have tainted the jury um, in deliberating how much of the punitive damages to assess. And so the court then was going to remand the case for another hearing on how much punitive damages could be assessed without the quote unquote tainted evidence. Um, But additionally, right, in order to assess punitive damages, you have to demonstrate like willful and wanton conduct or, or something was intentionally done or something was done just, uh, you know, so egregiously. And so, you know, this relates again to what we were just discussing about, you know, Smithfield's knowledge of these practices being deployed and the knowledge that um, Lagoon and, and Sprayfields and, you know, persistent truck traffic and collection of of corpses all really do result in harms and your knowledge of that and you not stopping those practices is evidence enough for a jury to um, have uh, found some level of, of Wilson, willful and Walton conduct. Um, and so at least with regards to punitive damages having been established, that was upheld. And so, what uh, is this? Go- is this going to go back to trial? Is it? Is there a possibility it will settle? Uh, what's the status here? Yeah, some uh, I believe, um, and it was announced. I think the day after this order, that all of the twenty six cases were settled. Okay, um, including the amount of punitive damages. I, I yeah. believe, yeah, every aspect of of the case was uh, settled. Okay, so that was going to be another question. I was wondering what happened to the other cases. Which is, you know, assuming it was it was a good settlement, that's great news. So they don't all have to like keep wending their way through the courts. And this just, yeah, I'm just going to reiterate my my spouting off my opinions here. It just seems so ridiculous that in the first place, damages are supposed to be punitive, so they're punitive damages. So it it does seem to matter how rich the defendant is in, in figuring out what's going to punish them. Um, but you know that's that's pretty much standard in law. We all pay the same amount for our traffic tickets, regardless of how much money we have. But it does kind of drive me crazy. Yeah, and if you read Aggie's um, dissent, I mean, he really goes into the principles of corporate law and 
you know, why we structure corporations in such a way that we have subsidiaries and all this stuff. And it, it just, in my mind, it, it really, it, it tells us a lot about what, what needs to change <laughs> about yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Ability because yeah, it, it, it's really frustrating when you know you cannot submit evidence of you know how rich or wealthy you know the parent company is on one side but then on the other side you know you can submit ev- evidence on how much economic benefit right the company gives and then the parent company gives and all this kind of stuff so so it's just it's it's very uneven um and it really creates a hurdle to hold companies accountable and make change that's going to actually, you know, impact them enough for them to actually, you know, do something about their practices. Yeah, I think it really does bring up some very complex issues regarding the the entire system. But um all right, so but but we need to get to the whole point of this interview. <laughs> 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 which we haven't yet, but there were a lot of, and thank you so much for going through all of these issues to get, well, not the whole point of the issue because the whole case is important and it's important precedent, but the really astounding thing is the the concurrence. I mean, you mentioned there was a dissent. I hadn't, I hadn't mentioned that, but there was also a concurrence and actually your, your amicus brief in this case actually focused on the treatment of animals. And I assume that you you file similar amicus briefs in many cases and it just goes by the wayside, but it did not here, did it? Can you tell us about the concurrence? Yeah, I mean, that was really thrilling. So I, I have to mention here, so yeah, th- this is the entry of me into, and, and the Humane Society into the, the lawsuit. And so we have to give so much credit to the trial attorneys, to the plaintiffs' firms that brought these cases and moved it through. And so that we really have to credit uh, Mona Lisa Wallace and and John Hughes of Wallace and Graham for for moving these cases through. And then for creating this amicus strategy that included the Humane Society and allowed us to raise these issues. And so um, it was just an honor to be able to participate in such a a historic case. And so why we call this historic is so Judge Wilkinson, who's a Reagan appointee and a very prominent conservative judge um, in the Fourth Circuit, uh, issued a, a groundbreaking concurrence that that really spelled out and articulated the harms to animals and, and the interconnection between harms to the animals, harms to the environment, and harms to uh, marginalized communities and farm workers. Um, and it's so eloquently written. You know, I can pull out so many wonderful quotes. For instance, um, Judge Wilkins writes, it's past time to acknowledge the full harms that the uninform- uh, unreformed practices of hog farming are inflicting. You know, and it really is. It really Freaking is past time, you know? <laughs> we been hammering this forever. And so it's just, it's so inspiring to see a conservative court actually getting it, you know? I think it really does indicate maybe a tipping point in society that we are going to take these issues really seriously. We're going to take 
our treatment of animals and how our treatment of animals harms uh, communities uh, in this country. Um, And we're not going to take it anymore. And I I really hope, I mean, that's my hope that that's what this means. Yeah, I I have to say that he did just such a masterful job of of incorporate, you know, because this is a nuisance cause of action. Animal suffering doesn't really have a whole lot to do with it on on its face. But he incorporates the suffering of the animals with the suffering, how it, it's at the center. And then the, the suffering of the farm workers grows out of that. And then the suffering of the community grows out of that. And I mean, I just, it's such a good judge who can, you know, <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. make things that you didn't think were connected really and make them completely connected. You, and they are, you know, they, they are connected. You can see it uh, the way he writes it, but it was, it was really masterful. He does, of course, repeatedly say that hog farming is hugely important to the North Carolina economy and must continue, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly on board with and, <laughs> and totally disagree with because I don't think it can or will. But do you think that was actually in some ways, I don't think he did it for strategy. I think that's probably what he believes. But from a strategic point of view, it's almost necessary that the arguments he is making come from someone with that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And if you listen to his questioning and at oral argument, he actually you know went on a, a long speech you know, he he even in in, the, in that setting acknowledged the economic importance of hog farming to to North Carolina, and that's how Smithfield wanted to present this. You know, Smithfield and its amicus, you know, really were trying to paint the picture that this industry is too big to fail, and that you know it's it's heavily regulated and you know <laughs> it, it's established for years with prudent environmental safeguards right it's just this whole mischaracterization but that's the that's the dominant narrative you know and so for i think judge wilkinson and a conservative judge who fits into that dominant narrative to to weave us out of it um, by saying okay you know, yeah, maybe it is important for, um, creates a lot of jobs in Eastern North Carolina. You questionably uh, generates food for the nation. Um, and these are important things. That doesn't mean that we can ignore all of the harms, not only to the animals, but to the communities who are suffering because of these practices. And those costs are not imputed onto the companies, right? They're, you know, they are now because of this verdict, but generally those are externalities that aren't calculated into the economics of the business. And so one of the things that I tried to do in our amicus brief is highlight the actual economic pitfalls related to these practices. So this would be, right, how much money does it cost us to clean up or somehow uh, prevent the spread of disease created by this, right? So we pointed to the 2009 swine flu outbreak and the billions of dollars it cost to contain that. Um, And then we point to all of the environmental impacts that are created by these practices that are, you know, um, contributing to greenhouse gases and it's, 
intensifying flooding that then wipes out these hog farms in North Carolina because of hurricanes that come in and the the economic damage that's in its in its path, right? So there's not just one economic calculation to do here that this is an industry that creates a benefit. It also creates a a big burden on society and they should be paying for that burden. And I- to your to your great credit, it is clear. I don't think that you could say that he relied exclusively on your brief, but he certainly relied heavily upon it. It certainly had great influence on him. And so that must feel pretty damn good. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm so thrilled. And yeah, I, I wish there was a way to print it out and or <laughs> get it framed um, maybe one day. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, we we are frequently uh, just not paid attention to at all. So to have somebody, and it, one of the great things too is that even though he did frame it in this, uh, we have to fix hog, you know, make hog farming better. Uh, not that we have to get rid of it, which you know I may not agree with, but obviously not everybody's going to come up to that point of view right away. Personally, I don't think that's even possible. I mean, like if we tried to fix it to a way that was tolerable for a judge who was actually paying attention to the welfare of, of the hogs, of the, I mean, of the pigs. I like to call them pigs instead of hogs. I always feel like hog is industry speak. Uh, right. The pigs and, and the people. It would cost a fortune, I mean, it, uh, to, it, to have a really good standard. But, you know, they're coming along and they don't quite know that yet. And they don't know there's, there's other things to eat. And so they're, <laughs> they're in that they're in that and that these are horrible jobs and that people will still have to eat so they'll still have to employ people to make food so there's a whole lot of things that they haven't figured out yet but the fact that they have figured out or at least the judge wilkinson has figured out that the animals actually matter and that they're at the center of this and you can't eliminate these concerns is just is just phenomenal so congratulations i i as i said the decision the majority decision i thought was very well written um, and but everybody has to go to this case because you have to read this concurrence. It's fascinating. Oh, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? There's one aspect of uh, the case that I think has a uh, the potential to to make even a bigger impact, and it's kind of a fallout of the decisions and of the verdict. But Smithfield is now fighting against its insurance company who's refusing to to cover their legal fees and cover the verdicts and that that can potentially have even more of a deterrent effect and scare industry players even more because they're not going to be covered Um, and so you know the case is settled we don't know what the settlement was but I think this ongoing question of whether insurance companies are going to continue to indemnify companies for practices like this, I I, I think it's less and less likely that they are. Um, So Smithfield's insurance company is the same. These harms were foreseeable. um, And and that's likely a lot drawn on, you know, what the majority opinion and what Wilkinson's concurrence said is that Smithfield did have knowledge that these practices are harmful and did nothing to abate them. And so why as an insurance company should we cover, cover those harms? That is a very exciting development. Yeah. 
and and is rooted in the language of this case that that was so strong. I mean, certainly Judge Wilkinson's language is very strong, but also the the majority's opinion on vicarious liability. And I mean, they not only knew about it, they invented these practices. Like, come on. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. that that could have real implications. I'm really glad I asked you that. So the case is over. Everything is settled. And we don't know the exact terms. Is that right? That's right. I don't think we'll ever know. I'm sure they're going to keep that very close. Uh, but I do think that we can, you know, and there's many of organizations in North Carolina on the ground who also participated as amicus here that probably are more closely monitoring um, to see whether or not these farms are going to implement mitigation measures, right? Changing their practices, covering up the poo lagoons. My fear is that, you know... Um, you know, if if it if it, the settlement terms is just about covering up the pool lagoons to then you know sell it to Dominion Energy for biogas or something like that, I mean that just further entrenches the system and makes it difficult to get away from factory farming because you need to generate a lot of waste to generate that type of energy. And so, hopefully, there's other practices that were negotiated in the settlement that are ones that will mitigate the nuisance, but also help animals. That would be reducing confinement, reducing the numbers of animals in these buildings. That's my hope, but we won't know um, until we, we see those being implemented, whether or not that was part of, of the negotiated settlement. Yeah, no, that biogas is, is is the most terrifying thing going on now. And it's, yeah, it, it should be one of the biggest focuses of anybody who's fighting factory farms. So I totally agree with you. I, you know, I don't know whether, whether this settlement agreement takes into account the animals. It seems unlikely, but who knows. But, you know, anything that you can do to improve the precedent and make it a little bit more expensive for these places to operate, I think is a is a step forward. So it's 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 all we have to take every chance we can. And this was a great chance, and it has given you something to cite in every other one of these cases that is so powerful. So so uh, just congratulations. It's really been exciting to hear about it firsthand. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We will be back next month with a new show. And thank you so much to Laura Fox for taking the time to delve into this really, really interesting case with us. Thank you to Jen Riley and Jared Gleckel for their help in producing the podcast. And in the meantime, if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts. And if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org donate. Thanks so much for tuning in. And please, please, please be safe out there. <laughs>